And let's pray. Only by grace can we enter. Only by grace can we stand. Not by our human endeavor, but by the blood of the Lamb. Father, as we come to your word now in Ephesians, I pray you would help each and every one of us to appreciate the saving grace that you have shown us in Christ all the more. We ask this for his glory. Amen. Amazing grace. Amazing grace. I'm sure some of us have heard of Victor Hugo's famous novel, Les Miserables. It's been turned into a, a very popular West End production, a musical in London. It's one of my and Melissa's favorites when we were there. Uh, Les Miserables. The story revolves around a man, Jean Valjean, and his family who hit very hard times during the French uh, Revolution. In fact, things get so bad that uh, Jean Valjean, he steals a loaf of bread to feed his starving children. And he is sentenced for his crime when he's caught, and he's given a very harsh jail time sentence. He's sent to, he's sent to jail for years. And inside, he becomes a very bitter, and a very angry man, given the circumstances that he was living in. When he was eventually released from prison, he returned back only to find his family gone, and those whom he had known in his former life had abandoned him. They wanted nothing to do with him. He was considered an outcast. On the road, he meets a kind bishop who takes him in for the night. The bishop's fairly poor. He lives in humble circumstances as well, but he does have some precious valuables. He has a full uh, set of silver cutlery and two silver candlesticks, which were his inheritance passed down from his own mother and father before. And that night, as the bishop goes to bed, Jean Valjean gives in to his former ways. He creeps downstairs and he steals all of that silver cutlery and runs off into the night. It's not long before the authorities catch up with him. They put him in chains and they drag him back to the bishop so that he would face justice. But as the bishop sees Jean Valjean with the soldiers coming towards him and he's in chains, the bishop runs to him and says, Valjean, Valjean, I, I see you have the silver cutlery I gave you, but why did you forget the candlesticks? They're of far greater worth. And Valjean just broke down in tears. It had been so long since he had experienced such amazing grace. The bishop had the, the right and the power to put him back in prison for the rest of his days. And instead, this kind, gracious bishop gives Valjean a part of his own inheritance, saves him, and simply says to him, Valjean, I have bought your life back for God. Be an honest man from this point. Well, if we are Christian here this morning, then we will know that we have been shown a far, far greater grace from God in the face of a far, far greater crime against him. Away from him and away from him and his son, we rejected him as the Lord of our lives, as we enjoyed his creation. And though we were made for his glory, we were made to honor and enjoy and worship him above all, we know, I know, we all have sinned against him. We have gone our own way and sought to live life as we see fit, away from our creator. And yet God has shown us amazing grace, giving his one and only son to save us from the punishment we deserve for our sins and to reconcile us to himself for life in his kingdom in every way. 
And we know that as Christians, but I wonder this morning if there are some of us who, despite knowing the truth of God's grace, we are still weighed down day by day by the reality of our sin. We see our sin, and we can't help but get that thought out of our heads. You're not worthy. You've blown it. How could you possibly call yourself a Christian? Do you really think God could love you given what you've done? And if that is you here this morning, and I think it will be all of us at some point in our Christian lives, I am glad that you are here as we start this new series looking at the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, The Reformation that started about 500 years ago. And so in the weeks leading up to Easter, we at St. Mary's, we are going to be looking at the five foundational convictions that that brought spiritual reformation to a church that had lost sight of God's grace. And the first sola this morning, sola gratis, God's grace alone. As we work through these verses in Ephesians, we're going to see Paul continually praising God and showing again and again and again how he in his mercy and nothing but his mercy has saved us as sinners and reconciled us to himself by his grace. Let's start in verse 3. Look in verse 3 with me. And Paul starts praising God, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul starts with that simple but crucial point that every ounce of saving grace we've received from God has come to us in the person of his Son, our Lord Jesus If we want to know God's favor and blessing upon our lives, we have to look to Jesus Christ because it cannot be found away from him. But in him, Paul writes, we have every spiritual blessing, a matter of God's grace. And we're going to look at these spiritual blessings under four points this morning. Chosen by God's grace alone, redeemed by God's grace alone, secured by God's grace alone, and included by God's grace alone. Let's start with that first one. As we come to verse 4, chosen by God's grace alone. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us. In the beloved. Paul doesn't start where we might expect him to. He doesn't start with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't start with the point at which we put our trust in him. Paul speaks of God's grace being active and deliberate before the very foundations of the world were created, before creation itself. In that verse 4, did you see that? Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, many, and certainly including myself in the past, have struggled with this concept, not because it's unclear, it's not hard to work out what's being said here, but because we find it hard to accept. God in his grace, choosing who would know life in his son before we have taken our first breath. We might think to ourselves, well, what about our choice? You know, if we are a Christian here today, then we can probably recall at some point in our lives, whether gradually over a long time or at one distinct moment, we deliberately chose to follow Jesus. I did that. When I was about 11 years old, I just went into my parents' bedroom one night. 
And I told my mum, Mum, I want to give my life to Jesus. And so with tears in her eyes, she prayed with me, and I became a Christian that evening. And that was real. That was a genuine decision on my part. But here we are being told that that very decision to trust on Christ, I want to follow Jesus, that decision was made possible only by God's undeserved favor, by His grace. Before He chose me, He chose me before I ever thought about choosing Him. It took me a long time to come to terms with that. I don't think any of us who become Christians normally start at that point, understanding that God chooses us before we would ever choose Him. Might be we're still struggling quite a bit with that concept today. Well, friends, we will see why God's electing His choosing grace is so vital only when we appreciate how truly lost we were in our sin away from Him. Now, you can probably tell that my relationship to the gym and exercise is not fantastic. And so in her loving concern, my wife Melissa has decided to, as it were, bring the gym to my doorstep. She has booked me some sessions with a personal trainer. It's got that bad now. We got off to a really good start last month, but this week, everything went wrong. I'd done my warm-up, those stretches that I'd been told to do, before Fendi, my trainer, came and, and grilled me and made me do all kinds of painful things. So I'd done those, and then we're about 20 minutes into our session, and we were still <clears throat> doing really basic exercises when all of a sudden I just froze. I felt this intense pain, and my posture, as it was, Fendi could tell exactly what I had done last Monday. He knew I hadn't warmed up properly for the workout session, and now I had a great pain in my lower back. Now, for those of you who do work out, you'll know if there is one muscle you really don't want to hurt for exercise, it is your lower back. Because as I learned last Monday in great pain, your lower back is connected to everything. <laughs> I couldn't jump. I couldn't do a push-up. In fact, I could hardly stand. I was totally incapacitated. Fendi, after making sure I wasn't going to die, left me on the couch totally incapacitated. And they say exercise is good for you. <laughs> well, friends, without God's electing grace, without God choosing us before we ever thought of choosing Him, we are, spiritually speaking, totally incapacitated. That is the testimony of this word. We cannot help ourselves out of the problem of our sin and bring ourselves back to God. Uh, Ephesians 2 verse 1, just on the, uh, the next page, this is how Paul describes our situation. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. It's a far worse state than me with my bad back. I could still use the TV remote, but to be dead in sin, dead people cannot do anything for themselves. They are dead. And so left to our own devices, we are powerless to stop our habit of rebelling against God and going our own way. Now, it's not as if, oh, I'm a sinner, but I really don't want to be, and I can't believe I'm locked here, and I really want to run back to God. It's not, it doesn't work that way. No, we have a love affair, an addiction with sin. We are responsible for the sin that we commit. We choose to sin 
but we are hopelessly addicted to it as we do. As Jesus says, John 8, 34, he who sins is a slave to sin. No one forces a drug drug addict to take drugs. He takes them of his own volition. So at one level, you can say he makes a choice. He takes it freely. But in actual fact, we know, don't we, that he's not free. He is now a slave to that drug which he chooses. And our slavery to sin is even more powerful than a drug addiction. We choose to live away from God. We delight to do that, apart from him, to say, I'm number one. I will live as I see fit. But as we do that, we are enslaved by the power of sin. And so left to ourselves, apart from God's grace, we will never choose to turn from it in our own strength. Again, it's not to say we're as bad as we could be. God in his mercy restrains the evil of the human heart. But having rejected him from the beginning, we as humanity delight to live as rebels against him. Martin Luther, he puts it this way, the famous reformer, active in the Protestant Reformation, he writes, there can be no free will in this sense, no free will in man. Our salvation may be taken entirely out of our hands and put into the hand of God alone, and this too is utterly necessary, for we are so weak and uncertain that if it depended on us, not even a single person would be saved. The devil would surely overpower us all. But since God is dependable, his predestination cannot fail, no one can withstand him And see how he finishes? We still have hope in the face of sin. See how Luther ends there? Because God has worked in his grace to set aside people for faith in his son, we still have hope in the face of sin. You know, I, I hear sometimes people saying, well, this view of salvation, it's so limiting. It's so limiting. And actually, no, it couldn't be further from the truth. It's liberating. Because it means there is hope in the face of the sins that we would otherwise be addicted to. God in his grace has worked to bring us back to himself, to break that addiction. And again, it's his grace. None of us deserve this rescue. I don't deserve it. God's grace, grace by definition, is undeserved favor. And I know, yes, we might wonder, well, why doesn't God simply choose everyone? But friends, it is humbling, and we need to remember that it is God's decision. It is His right, because none of us, not one of us, are entitled to His grace as a right. How can we know we're a recipient of this great grace this morning? Well, say from your heart, Jesus is Lord, and my desire is to know and trust and live for Him, away from the sins that He saved me from. And if that is true of you this morning, then you know that God has shown you great grace, because you couldn't do that apart from him. And that brings us to our second point, redeemed by grace alone. Come to me, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Now, despite the fact that I'm a very good driver today, of course, it wasn't always the case. To my shame, I was involved in a car accident three days after passing my test. I'm not making it up, three days after passing my test. I was driving through a quiet English village one morning. I was approaching what we have, those like mini roundabouts, a very small roundabout, and another car was coming up on the left, so I knew, having just studied my highway code, I knew I had the right of way. 
But being the very inexperienced driver that I was, having passed my test only three days before, I just assumed that every single driver knew their highway code, and every driver followed it to the letter. So I didn't slow down as I approached the roundabout. I went straight over it, and it seems this driver on the left didn't see me. And so they continued as well, and we hit. My lack of experience, and so we hit. And they were in a real state. Not only because, well, we had just had an accident, but this guy's insurance wasn't exactly in order, shall we say. So I had to make a decision. Call the police and demand justice, or let this guy off the hook. And that morning I took pity on him. I let him leave without a penalty, but my car was still smashed in. I had let the offender go, but the damage that was caused to my car, that, that wasn't going to repair it. it. The car still had to be paid for. And so it was paid by me. And it's the same with our sin, friends. Uh, God can't just turn a blind eye to the rebellion that we've committed against him or the pain that we've caused others in this world, his world, as a result. Someone has to pay. But it can't be us. We cannot ever hope to pay God back for the sins that we have committed against him. And here is why. In the beginning, God created us in his image to know and love and serve him with all that we are, all our heart, all our mind, all our strength. 100% of who we are was owed to God and his glory. Revelation 4.11, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive all glory and honor and power because you created everything. By your will, we were created and have our being. So we owe God 100% before we even sinned. Now, your boss might tell you at work, I want you to give 110% today, but they know they're asking for the impossible. You cannot give more than 100% of what you are, and with God, Having already owed him 100%, we're actually in debt with sin. We, we've given him far less than 100%. It's a debt. Our sin is a debt that we can never, ever hope to repay in and of ourselves because we already owe God everything. And yet God in his grace has done what we could never do. He has paid the debt himself in our Lord Jesus, living that life we failed to live and then dying the death we deserve for it. As our verse says, in him we have redemption bought back by the price of his blood. We have been redeemed, bought back. And we know that's true because Christ lives. He conquered the grave in his resurrection and he was exalted as God's Savior and King. See verse 9? Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Friends, history is going somewhere. God has planned for all things to be united in and under his son to restore this world one day which we have broken in sin through Jesus, God's chosen king. And so at the end of the day, everything is going to be brought into submission under him, under Christ as king. The question for us today is, will we know him as our saviour now, or will we know him as our judge later when he returns? If Christ is ours now, then we are on the right side of history. No one who has trusted in his blood will be lost. The debt is paid. 
But if we insist on paying for sin our own way, according to our own understanding, by our own merits, we will not see life with him. When I was back at university, we would go, I'd go with a few friends around my campus on a Friday lunchtime, and we would just try and strike up conversation with fellow students. Uh, and my friend Pete got talking to this guy who was quite open at one time and had said, yeah, I, I believe in God, what of it? And so my friend Pete asked this guy, so why do you think God will let you into his heaven? Why will God let you into his heaven? And the guy responded as a very common response, well, you know, I'm not a bad guy. I pay my taxes, not much as a student, but I still pay my taxes. I live an honest life. I, I, I'm not really, I know others who are much worse than me. And so my friend Pete followed up with what I thought was a really wise question. He said, okay, my friend, is God going to let you into his heaven based on your terms or his? Is God going to let you into his heaven based on your terms or his? And that got the guy thinking. Because the answer is obvious, right? God's kingdom, God's heaven, it'll be God's terms. Well, here are the terms for entry into his kingdom. It's from Revelation 21, 27. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And I know I'm guilty of being false. I know I've lived the lie of sin. I'm number one. God doesn't matter. And so our only hope is God's undeserved favor to us in his son, the lamb of God who takes away our sins, having our name written in his book. And so please, if you haven't, won't you turn to him who is a sufficient savior before it's too late? Know the joys of sin forgiven. Our every sin cleansed by his blood, our every need met in his love. Well, God's grace, it doesn't just deal with our wickedness, our sins that we need to be saved from. His grace has actually brought us something far better in the place of sin, a secure future in Christ. Thirdly, we are secured again by grace alone. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, I first learned what an inheritance was many years ago when my grandmother passed away. And she was a lovely, lovely lady. She worked incredibly hard to look after myself and my sister Lucy while my parents were out uh, working to support our family. And I wasn't exactly a nice grandson. I was a real brat. Uh, I remember this little game that I would play that drove her up the wall. I would find precious objects in her house, and I would hide them intentionally. And no matter what she did, I would not tell her where I'd hidden them. She'd cook delicious lunches for us. I would spit them out on the floor. I was a horrible brat to her. One day, she passed away. And to my utter disbelief, my parents told me, your grandmum has left you some money. And for me back then, it was a lot of money. And for the first time in my life, I was starting to understand the concept of inheritance. It's something that I knew I really didn't deserve it at all. I deserved a spanking. And instead, I received this inheritance. Why? Because I was family. No other reason than that. And that's what God has done for us in Christ. He has adopted us into his family. Did you see that back in verse 5? Halfway down. 
He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So we are now co-heirs with Jesus. We are now looking forward by God's grace to what he deserved. We have his inheritance. Eternal rest in the presence of the God who made us to know him, away from the pain and the grief and the sorrow and the death of this world that we know only so closely. We have the promise of a future where there is no sin, where there is only life and goodness and rest. Are we treasuring that future that we have in Christ, this great inheritance this morning? Because if we are, it should be shaping our priorities in the present as we wait for it. We won't be overly concerned with what we have or what we don't have in the here and now if an eternal inheritance is what we've got our eyes and our hearts fixed on. But I I know myself in my heart. I think to myself, Tim, you're missing out in this life. You know, you don't get to travel as much as you'd like or you, you, you don't live in that house that you really want. You don't drive that car that you'd really like. And I start buying into the live materialism which our world is so sold out on. This life is it. Make the most of it. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And that's the kind of thinking I start to work through when I start losing sight of the inheritance that I have in Christ, eternal, secure in Him. I was really encouraged not long ago seeing a couple who are clearly prizing their future in Christ more than the fading pleasures of this world, because instead of wasting their savings on expensive cruises or free mocha lattes at Starbucks every day like some of their friends were doing, this couple were investing in resources to be faithful servants of God's kingdom, to be better equipped to be sharing the good news of Christ with others who they knew that they might share in that kingdom as well, where is their joy? They're investing in that future which is unfading, kept in heaven for us that unshakable kingdom. Friends, let's keep these eye, the eyes of our hearts fixed on where we're really heading and not be overly concerned about the fading, fading pleasures of this world. God's grace means we've received an eternal inheritance, a future worth living for, and in His grace, He has made it available for all who would repent, no matter who they are, no matter where they're from. Brings us to our final point. We are included in this by grace alone. You might have noticed Paul so far has been using the words we and us in these verses to describe those who are receiving God's grace. Just have a look with me in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And the we, the us that Paul is referring to there is him and his fellow Jewish believers, those who share ancestry with God's people in the Old Testament, those who had been redeemed from slavery, given his good law, who knew something of the promise of Christ before he even came. But see what Paul says in verse 13. Now he says, in him you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Paul's not addressing his fellow believing Jews anymore. He's talking to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews in this church, those who were not part of God's people from before, those who had not known deliverance from slavery, had not received his good law. Uh, Those who, if you just flick over the page, look in Ephesians 2.12, how Paul describes... 
Us as Gentiles, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But then read on in verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you, who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. God's intention was never to show His saving grace to just merely one nation as He promised even to Abraham. Before Israel became a nation, through you, Abraham, and your descendants, I will bless all the families of the earth. And that's what God has achieved now by the blood of His Son. No one's excluded just because they're from a particular background or they have a particular history. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, we all share the same standing before God, nothing but the blood of Jesus to cleanse us. And friends, if God has broken down every barrier in his grace, then who are we as his people to erect our own barriers between others and his grace? That came as a real challenge to a friend of mine a few years ago. He was running a Christianity Explored group at his local prison. It was a minimum security prison, so the convicts were guilty of pretty, pretty petty crimes, shoplifting, vandalism, that kind of thing. But then when he got down to the prison, he was about to start the course one morning, and one of the guards came up to him and told him, um, something irregular has happened. Uh, we've just received a new transfer, another prisoner, and he's very keen to join your group, but I just need to tell you something about him. Uh, th- he isn't like one of the other guys. Uh, this guy is a convicted murderer. There's just max capacity on the other side, so we've had to bring him in here. But this guy literally, he's actually, he was actually literally an axe murderer. He had killed someone with an axe, and now he was facing justice, serving a life sentence. He would never see the outside world again. But he really wanted to join my friend's Bible study group. My friend, he felt very uncomfortable in his heart. He was really strongly tempted to say no. Because in his heart, he felt, this, this guy? This murderer? It, it, how could he be worthy of forgiveness, of, of life in Christ? And yet, my friend, thankfully, was convicted. He knew that was wrong. In his own discomfort, he was erecting a barrier between the gospel of grace and this man who needed it so greatly, forgetting that he himself, a fellow sinner, had been saved by nothing short of God's grace, none of his own merits. I wonder for us as a church if we can at times be guilty of the same self-righteous attitude. I I doubt it's towards axe murderers, but there may well be some people that we know or a particular group that we know, and we're very reluctant to share the gospel of grace with them. And it's not because we're afraid of the consequences so much, but in our hearts we just feel, no, they're not worthy. They can stay outside. They can't come in. They're not worthy to become fellow brothers and sisters in Christ with us. And when we do that with anyone, we betray the gospel of grace by which we have been saved. God didn't redeem us because we were a nice people. He didn't redeem me because I'm a nice guy. He redeemed me despite the reality of my sin against him. He redeemed the apostle Paul, who was once the Pharisee Saul. See how Paul describes himself? Given the crimes that he committed, imprisoning and putting to death members of God's people, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners 
of whom I am the foremost, of whom I'm the worst. Now, if God in his grace was willing to save a sinner like Paul, who are we to say to our neighbor, you are not worthy? We've got to remember, grace by definition is undeserved. None of us have the right to receive it, and so none of us have the right to withhold it. D.T. Niles, who was a Sri Lankan minister in the Methodist church, he described our faith in a beautiful way like this. Christianity is one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. Okay? Christianity is one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. And friends, beggars cannot be choosers. God has made his grace available to all who would hear and repent no matter who they are or what they've done. So let's be humble in accordance with the gospel of grace. Let's be reaching our fellow neighbors, whoever they may be, whatever we might know they've done, because we are saved by grace alone. What does that mean for us as God's people? Well, what have we seen? It means that God in his grace has chosen us. His hand was on us long before we chose him. It means in his grace he's redeemed us. He gave his one and only son to pay the penalty of our sin that we could never repay ourselves. In his grace he secures us. Now we have the promise of eternal life in the place of what we deserve, condemnation. And so in his grace, he has included us, every barrier broken down so that sinners might come back to him, whoever they may be. And that's why we say as God's church, we are saved by grace alone. The gospel of grace from before time began. God chose to redeem me and fashioned a plan that holy and blameless and unto his praise, I might be adopted to show forth his praise.